when they say that they, 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 you know, they're getting suicidal as they approach puberty because they know that they're going to develop much more prominent male organs and, and yet inside they're absolutely, absolutely female. What do you think they're doing? Do you think they're just lying? One girl said to the other, why, why is Jack growing his hair and wearing girl clothes? And the other girl went, oh, didn't you know, he's got a girl brain in a boy body. Now, the reason he's allowed to intimately search me is because a transgender police officer who said he was a woman took the police to court to have that right because he said it was mm -hmm. discriminatory but if he for him believes, not to be able to. But if he to. believes he's a woman, mm. you're saying that doesn't make him a woman? Hello, everyone. The clips you've just heard were, of course, about the concept of transgender. Essentially, that our gender is determined not by our physical sex but by our own inner feeling of what we truly are. In the space of just a few short years, this idea has progressed from being utterly fringe to so mainstream that TV presenter Eamon Holmes can make his guests sound like she's the fringe one for not believing it. But what does all this rest upon? What are the metaphysical foundations of trans? To explore this question, I've invited Professor Gerard Casey onto the show. Professor Casey is the author of the book Hidden Agenda, Transgenderism's Struggle Against Reality, where he examines trans ideology through looking at various philosophical conceptions of the self. Given the rapid ascent of this ideology, I start out by asking Professor Casey when he first became aware of it. It would have to be after 2017, because I finished my big history of political philosophy in 2017, and then I started work on, excuse me, on the, as it turned out, three books, although I didn't know that at the time. And it was only when I started to work on the, that area, which was like freedom of speech, diversity, inclusion, and that sort of stuff, and uh, feminism, that I began to become aware of it. So it would have to be sometime around 2018. Now, my being aware of something doesn't mean that it didn't exist before I was aware of it, obviously, but certainly given my concerns and my interests, if it had been in any way prominent, uh, say before 2017, 2018, I think I could say with reasonable certainty that I would have been aware of it at the time. So it's very new. And what's even more astonishing and something that you mentioned is that the way it's gone, it's gone from being a minority, even a sort of crackpot view that nobody held, certainly nobody in any responsible position in law or society or whatever, um, to being uh, almost now the 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 orthodoxy uh, in kind of, uh, you know, among the great and the good. Now, that's all the more interesting, by the way, certainly in the UK, when you think that the Gender Recognition Act was actually passed in 2004. That's a long time ago. I was like, you know, and it looked as if nobody uh, was aware of it. Nobody was paying any attention to it. It didn't have any sort of public traction, which is quite striking. Our Gender Recognition Act uh, was only passed in 2015. So just around this time or a little bit before. But the UK's Gender Recognition Act goes all the way back to 2000. I think it's I think I'm correct in saying 2004. Uh so that would suggest that somebody was aware of these things at that time and the law was passed and it seemed to have little or no impact. Very interesting. Well, the thing that 
strikes me the fact when I'm reminded of it is that Barack Obama ran in 2008 and he was opposed to gay marriage then. Yes. And only when the, the country tipped to over 50% in favour, he then had a reconsideration too. Well, maybe it's not that such a bad idea. But And when you say that to people now, they're kind of shocked because it feels like a, you know Obama was this really progressive guy and that being opposed to gay marriage is something from the 1970s or something. And it, it really just brings home because people don't feel the election of Obama was a long time ago. Just the this sudden shift in society that we've we live through. Yeah, I think I, I can't remember which politician it was who said something like, let me see which way the crowd is going so that I can lead them. <laughs> so so uh, that's, that's to some extent, uh, understandable. Um, in terms of something like uh, gay marriage, uh, which was opposed by everybody, by the way, not just Obama. Yeah. Like all again, this is one of those things where all the great and the good were all firmly opposed and so on. And when you're talking about sort of all of the gay rights and people at the time said, well, you know, if we go, to, if we go very far along this road, it won't be long before we'll have them wanting to get married. And they all said, oh, no, 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 no. That's scaremongering. That's never going to happen. <laughs> okay. And it did. Um, but in that case, there was, for whatever reason and whatever one thinks about it, a genuine change in opinion uh, among the mass of people. In the case of transgenderism, I don't see that. There isn't a corresponding, in other words, I, okay, I mean, here's a practical test that you or anybody listening to this uh, podcast can do, which is to uh, talk to somebody, your friend or whatever, uh, over a pint and say something like, um, do you know what the Gender Recognition Act is? And I would be astonished if one out of 10 actually knew there was such a thing, right? And then of the one who actually knew, and you ask, do you know what it actually permits in its uh, central article? And they might say, well, I presume it recognizes, it would go with the name gender recognition, it recognizes uh, gender. And you say, well, no, actually, very interestingly, despite the fact that all the way through the significant paragraph, it talks about gender, 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 gender. When it gets to the very end, it says sex. So what the Gender Recognition Act actually purports to do is to allow people to change their sex. And I will be surprised if the person you're talking to either doesn't believe you or is flabbergasted and astonished. <laughs> it's just one of these things. Yeah. So very different from the situation with say divorce or contraception or abortion or gay marriage or any of the other things where there would genuinely be a significant portion of people, either a majority or a significant minority of people in favor of these things. I suspect that in the case of transgenderism, most people know absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, I suspect that's the case. Yeah. What prompted you to write the book? Was it a fascination with the kind of philosophical claims that were being made or a concern for the world that was emerging through them? Well, I, it's kind of hard, it's curious to say this. I actually didn't want to write this book. <laughs> As I said, I started a project and the project took on a life of its own. And it was kind of clear, uh, more or less, I, I started with the free speech, which is really my central concern. And indeed, it's the free speech which motivates me, even in hidden agenda, right? But um, so... It became clear that I couldn't deal with it all in one book, otherwise my publisher was going to have a heart attack. I was going to have another 800-page 
book on my hands, which nobody was going to buy or read. So we kind of broke it up into the discrete sections, right? And the third section really was uh, the stuff on gender. And see, my approach to this is fairly straightforward, right? So I'm a libertarian, um, which means if if a man wants to claim to be a woman and to act in a way that he thinks a woman acts and, and so on, I don't, from from the social and political point of view, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I think it's stupid, but hey, there are lots of stupid things that people do, right? And I'm not in the business of, you know, sort of cancelling out other people's stupidities. But the problem is that with the laws, the Gender Recognition Act, it's not what other people are doing. It's what you are being forced to do because you are now obliged to treat people who have a gender recognition certificate um, for example, men who have one and are now, legally speaking, female, you, you are now obliged to treat them as female. And for me, that's an imposition on me. That's a lie that I'm not prepared to, uh, to talk and so on and vice versa. And that's the problem. And, and, and we've now seen uh, in the last number of years, we've seen a, a rapidly developing row between the so-called trans-exclusionary radical feminists, known by the acronym TERF, although that's not something you would necessarily want to be called, but the, these feminists are saying, look, <laughs> uh, we, we have fought long and hard for certain, for certain rights and privileges. And one of the things we, we want and demand is that, for example, women should have their own spaces. They should be they should have their own changing rooms. They should they should have their own sporting competitions. And of course, what's happened is that now on foot of the Gender Recognition Act, uh, somebody who has the appropriate certificate can claim to be, for example, a woman and therefore claim to be able to enter a, let's say, changing room or a dressing room or a toilet or a bathroom uh, or any, any facility which up to now has been, if, if you like, exclusively female. And, and these feminists have a point. I mean, they see this as a threat, not necessarily that anything would happen, but the, the mere fact that somebody who, in their eyes, is a man, now has the right, as it were, to be present in their uh, private spaces. And that's another practical problem. So it's a problem of being forced to tell a lie or live with a lie. Um, and it, we, we've seen it, for example, we've seen a case here recently. So, for example, I mean, if somebody, okay, let, let, let's, let's take a practical issue and well, I'll, I'll stop and let you come back in. But suppose somebody, suppose there was a man who said he, he, he gets one of these certificates and now he wants to be called Susan. Well, fine, I don't care. Susan is a name, names are names, right? As long as it's not obscene or 14 million syllables long, I don't really care. So I'm quite happy to call that person Susan. But I'm not prepared to refer to that person in the third person as she. Right? That would be a lie. I'm quite happy to, um, let's say, put aside pronouns and refer to that person by their name. Okay, Pronouns, if you like, simply stand in for names. It's an imposition on me, but it's one I'm willing to bear for the sake of politeness. But I will not do it because it's not just a matter of being polite. I'm happy to, as I said, go with the name, but I will not refer to a man as she or to a woman as he. That's just not on. Anyway, that's just a sort of bad okay. What I'm going to ask you to do is park those thoughts for a moment, because I'd like to get 
underneath yep. that to the kind of yes. metaphysical foundations and then return to the societal consequences. So I must admit, I not been interested in this issue particularly. I never planned to do a podcast on it until I read your book. And I only read your book because I know you. It wasn't because I wanted to read the transgender <laughs> book. But when I did, um, I realized that you make the point about I saw the word Gnostic in it. Well, that's interesting because I've been interested in Gnostic philosophy. Yeah. How is Gerard connecting this to the Gnostics? And it made me think, oh, yeah, I hadn't really considered this, but there are certain metaphysical assumptions being made that send people skewing off in a completely different direction from where most people are with this issue, say. And I think if you boil it down to the people who are genuine in this debate and, and really do hold the opinions they hold for genuine reasons, I, I would suspect there are people who aren't. I would suspect there are a lot of people who have rather nefarious or self-serving reasons for holding the positions yep. uh, they do and are prepared to you know, throw teenagers who are undergoing medical procedures potentially under the bus so they can carry on with those positions. <laughs> but I do think there is a contingent who genuinely um, Whole, believe in, in what they're saying and I had to reason myself for the positions and okay well if, if you take the idea that there is this inner self that I occupy a body and that's not an uncommon position throughout philosophies and religious systems throughout history and this I isn't a perfectly neutral being it's not some um, sexless soul that I could be gendered in some sense either because it's the chemicals in my brain that are that way or it's because I've incarnated for the past 10,000 lifetimes as a woman and this is my first one as a man and my soul is somehow feminine right in in, in that sense you have these medical physical systems um but they divide the self from the body and um, and then you could look at it another way and say well actually what does that mean to divide the self from the body how much of who i am is made up by my physicality and how is that separable so maybe you could just speak to that observation that you you've made in the book about this core metaphysical assumption that's going on well, I mean, what you're addressing, what the, the point you're bringing up here is a sort of foundational uh, point and argument and area of discussion in, I suppose you'd call it philosophical psychology or philosophical anthropology. What kind of creature, what kind of beings are we? Right now, the position you just outlined, uh, uh, and there are representatives of that, both in religion and in philosophy, though probably a declining number in philosophy is known as dualism, which simply says that the human being is really made up of two substances which are, as it were, conjoined. There is, and various words are used, so there's a self or soul or anima or whatever you might call it, okay, or psuche, okay, different words, uh, which is what you really are, which is really you, okay, and then there is your body to which the self or soul or anima is somehow attached. And if you're going for, if you like, a strong form of dualism, then the relationship between the self-solar anima and your body is going to be contingent. That is to say, it's not necessary. You would be you without a body at all, or indeed, if you were attached to another body. Now, the, this is a perfectly respectable <laughs> uh, philosophical position. And indeed, in uh, certain religions, it's core. So largely speaking, I mean, sort of in Orthodox Hinduism, right? The, the Atman so is the self or soul, and it is contingently connected to a body. And indeed, in, in sort of standard uh, Hindu systems, it, it persists and is attached 
in the, in the life cycle in the shamsara is is linked to other uh, bodies until eventually it, it it escapes or it is released uh, uh, to live as it were to exist on its own finally without any attachment and in these views the body is seen as something more or less unnecessary to what it is that you are okay so something that can be as it were disposed of now in the west do we have something similar well yes the sort of standard view of plato it may not be wrong and and, and this is likely to cause contention but certainly the standard view of plato and by the way there are those who think he derived it uh in various ways from the east okay because it's not the standard greek view the standard platonic view was that the soul and body are connected contingently in this particular way and that what you really are is the soul and that your body is something that is not really as an essential part of you at all in later in later um as the tradition develops that you even had a phrase soma sema which means the body a tomb which regards the body as it were as a tomb in which the real self or soul is imprisoned and the idea is that uh, your goal is one of liberation and liberation involves freedom from the body in in early christianity probably not long after it was founded but certainly by the end of the first century um certain christians be became influenced by what are now known generally although the term is a bit diffuse gnostic traditions and then the gnostic tradition again i'm i'm painting with a, a big brush here okay but in the gnostic tradition uh the they tended to adopt a, a kind of platonic view and they saw the body as not being uh essential to being a human being at all and indeed as being it and its concerns as being rather gross uh, and something from which they needed to escape so you can see that in both east and west there are traditions if you like in which this kind of dualism uh, plays a part okay so it occurs to me that maybe the reason i this didn't come leaping out at me about transgender that it had this metaphysical assumption is because for a good portion of my life it's a metaphysical metaphysical assumption i've made and has maybe been so foundational i didn't see it because it's just mm -hmm. an assumption like okay yeah but obviously there's a me in here that is in this body in some sense and there could be psychological reasons for that there could be reasons why that's kind of waned maybe as i've grown older i've become more comfortable in my physicality and, and less kind of like wanting to keep it at a distance but like um, philosophers like uh plotinus plotinus i think it's right in the the opening um section of his his book that his, his student before writes him that he would never allow a statue to be made of him because that's making an image of the image and it's ridiculous to think yeah. this body is actually him you know what, what could it possibly have to be of him and i suppose uh, although in these kind of systems the way plotinus writes about it or the um, eastern mystics it seems to be the true self the atman is reducible to something that is beyond gender it's witnessing yeah. awareness the core part of the being and i think then the um the bit where there's some kind of play there is I know who I am now as I'm sat here talking to you and maybe there's this true identity that's off in the distance somewhere this witnessing awareness this, that's beyond characteristics of personality but what's the bit in the middle like like if my body falls away right now and I find myself so, still here somewhere or going down a tunnel and um, then maybe <laughs> like like we read in near-death experience accounts okay so this is on the one hand I think these are they have certain merit to them scientifically and 
what's more interesting to me is experientially the people that come back are completely changed forever by what they experience but they report an experience of being in some way themselves absent the body and so that, on that sense it makes a lot of sense to me but if i think about it another way it doesn't make any sense at all because it's just obvious when i meet my relatives and they have the same characteristics as me that some of who i am is genetic on some level and the fact that i find slimy things repulsive is because humans have an evolved disgust mechanism to protect themselves from things that might be disease-ridden. So if my soul steps out of my body and I go to the spirit realm, do I still find slimy things disgusting? And why would I? Well, that bit of me is going to be gone. But if you if you take that as a starting point and extrapolate out, so much of me must, must fall away of the body. So much of my psychology must fall away of the body. So then I'm left with a question I can't really answer then about... Um, how to how to reconcile that i suppose how to how to think of that yeah. and yeah. and i know well, well, go ahead sorry. yes sorry, sorry richard i was going to say in fact one one salient difference between say the Britonic view and western dualisms on the one hand and eastern dualisms is that the dividing line between the self-soul whatever it might be and the body in the west uh the self and the soul generally include your psychology in fact, that's where as anima is means soul, right? And psuche is the Greek for soul. Right? So the division is between you, what what you are essentially, and all those psychological bits and pieces, like memory and all of that, is on one side, and your body is on the other side. But in the East, the line is drawn much further back, because in the East, all of your psychology belongs on the body side. Okay. Right. And what the real you, the Atman, has no psychological characteristics because psychological characteristics are essentially, from the Eastern point of view, are essentially somatic. Okay. As a, that's a clear difference, which you'll see and sometimes puzzling to people when they encounter Eastern thought, especially Indian thought for the first time. You don't have quite the same kind of distinctions in Chinese thought. Okay. So I'm going to try and bring this back into transgender. Mm. Um, so one of the analogies often made uh, with people critical of transgender is the comparison to anorexia or body dysmorphia or something. And I think it's a very valuable comparison because it clearly shows how people, and particularly teenagers' psychology, can go very obviously wrong in a very, very destructive way. And whatever way you would address someone with anorexia, you wouldn't be recommending or agreeing that uh, someone who weighs seven stone should be going off to get a gastric band because uh, that would be obviously disastrous. Um, no. But there is, on a philosophical <laughs> level, a, a distinction, right? In that if if I was to um, tell you that I weigh 27 stone and I need to go on a, on a diet, well, I'm not the skinniest, but you could tell me that objectively that's wrong, okay? And you can point to a number on a screen on weighing scales that says it's wrong. Or if I had bodies more, for instance, my face is upside down and I'm too hideous to face the world. I mean, without being too complimentary, you can say, well, that's, that's clearly wrong. You're, you're not, you have a normal enough kind of appearance to be able to leave your own house. With transgender, that would be the case if I said, this is a female body you're, you're seeing here before you, that would clearly be incorrect. But for me to say, I have a female soul, or there's something in the arrangement of the neurons of my brain that makes me a woman, that doesn't strike me as a, a, a falsifiable premise the way the others are. So are we reduced to a position that we can never really resolve one way or the other, that it, it could indeed be the case in, if you adopt a certain metaphysical system that men who are claimed to be women and vice versa maybe have a point? I mean, you raise valid concerns, but I think there are two issues. 
here. So, so let me focus on the first and then come back to the second. So let me take uh, the points you raised about um, body dysphoria or body image and that sort of thing, right? Um, or somebody who is, well, well, well who's anorexic. Um, we can we can clearly see by examination that a person who weighs like six and a half stone when they're you know they should be weighing something in the region of like ten, uh, and who claims to be overweight, is making a claim which is demonstrably false about themselves. How do we know that? Well, we can tell by looking at their weight. Okay, and nobody in their right minds would suggest to somebody in that situation that they would not validate the view, the psychological view that they have of themselves. They would not say, oh, well, well they'd be sympathetic, of course, and all that, right? They're not going to say, yes, you really are grossly overweight. And what you need to do <laughs> is to lose some more weight. That would be completely irresponsible. The same would be true of body image uh, dysfunction. And the same is true on that level. I'll come back to your later point in a moment. When it comes to sex, if somebody who now we're not talking about intersex people whose 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 sex indicators are ambiguous, right? That that's a tiny amount, and that's not where the issue lies. But let's say somebody who has all of the exterior sex organs, let us say, of a woman, all of the internal sex organs of a woman, all of the genetic functions uh, structures of a woman, right? If that person claims to be a man then that's just as obviously false and problem psychologically problematic as somebody who is anorexic or somebody who has body image disorder for the, exactly the same reason. In other words, you can look at somatic dimension and you can talk and you can look at their psychological claims and there's a mismatch between them. And in all cases where, the, where this is up to now, at least <laughs> recently, we took the body as the indicator. In other words, if somebody had all the sex characteristics of a woman, that was what we had. Now, so we now come to the, 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 the point you raised. But suppose somebody, so suppose somebody feels very strongly that they're overweight when they're not. Well, we think they have a psychological problem. Suppose somebody feels that they're incredibly ugly when they're no uglier than the rest of us. <laughs> okay, that's a psychological problem. Suppose somebody thinks that he is a woman or that she is a man. That person has a psychological problem. In the same thing, it's it's all on the same. There's no reason why we would, as it were, treat one set of cases in one way and another, this particular case, in another way. Right. Let, so let's, that's that's when we take all of those things together. But let me come to your second point. When when we come back to the thing about dualism, right, when we, we now leave all that to one side because that's the, the, those all stay together. Um, so suppose somebody says, I'm, suppose some man says, I'm really a woman. Well, what does that mean? Uh, you say, well, uh, so wh why do you think you're a woman? And so what, what would that man say in those circumstances? What evidence would you say? Well, you have all the, all the physiological apparatus of a man, and yet you say you're a woman. Uh, and he says, well, I feel like a woman. And you go, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to feel like a woman? Does it mean that you you like the things that women stereotypically like and don't like the things that men stereotypically like? And and if you said, oh well, yeah, that's part of it at least, you'd say, well, but there's no reason why to be a man necessarily implies that you have to be stereotypically male in your likes and dislikes. 
or to be stereotypically or sorry or to be female you have to be stereotypically female in your likes or dislikes feelings in that kind of sense don't count there's no criteria for them it's just it's not like getting pinched if you're pinched you feel it physiologically but when you say i have a feeling that i'm a woman typically speaking what's tended to happen and and as i since i've written the book i look around what seems to be the case when people talk about gender what they're really talking about here is some form of stereotypical uh, appearance or behavior which they are drawn towards mm. right and if that's the case well that's a whole lot less metaphysically high-flying than what we've been talking about well fine i mean if, if that's if that's what you want to be or to do right uh, go do it but it doesn't make you female right any more than being a man and uh, and so on, whatever all of these things so 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 behaving in this way and who who's going to stop you from doing it well certainly not me right but it doesn't make you to be female you're still female you're a female acting in this way and here i'll just finish up with this point and come back to you there's a curious kind of regressive uh, point about this which is that um are you familiar with did you read Enid blyton when you were young and the famous yes it, yes do you yes. remember do you remember george in the famous no, five? no, I read the Island and the Sea of Adventure books, not the famous five. So I like sorry, those two, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but anyway, in the famous five, there are two boys and two girls, and one of the girls is called Georgina, but she doesn't want to be a girl, and she insists on being called George. Right? Mm. Now, this is back in the forties and fifties when they were read, right? and of course, what you're experiencing, what you're seeing there, is very common um, in that many young people don't identify readily with the kind of social stereotypes that attach to their sex. That's true for boys as well as for girls, right? But probably more prominent among girls. And it's like we know now from the stats that when it comes to boys, uh, about 80% of boys who have this kind of mismatch between what they see themselves as and what they actually are disappear by the end of puberty. In the case of women, it's somewhat less but it's still over 50%. And in the old days, we would have said, she's a tomboy, okay? which meant she's a girl who likes or wants, wants to be a boy and wants to do boys things and so on. And it, we would have looked back on that and seen that this is somebody who felt, especially in the 50s, for example, trammeled and bound by the conventions associated with being a girl or, or a woman. In other words, there are certain things you couldn't do and so on, whereas boys were perceived at least as having greater freedom. And therefore, you know, George, Georgina wanted to be a boy, but she's not a boy. She's a girl. OK, she's a very boyish girl. Right. But she's a girl. Now, the problem today is that a George today would now be told that if you're a girl and you like boyish things, that indicates, wait for it, that you are a boy. That's quite amazing. Yeah. Okay. Similarly, if you're a Billy Elliot and you want to do ballet dancing, okay, that would indicate that Billy Elliot isn't the boy who wants to do ballet dancing. He's actually really a girl. And you will be encouraged to socially transition. And then eventually, if depending on who you see, you will be uh, encouraged to transition, in fact, medically, either through hormones or through uh, sex changing sex hormones, or indeed, in the end, through uh, dramatic surgery, which is quite striking. 
but the whole this whole procedure in fact is a is a regression to the stereotypes we had about men and women 50 years ago and i find it both bizarre and kind of painfully amusing to see this in operation i think you have to well, it just brings to mind like some sort of Taoist philosophy to me that when things reach their extremes, they flip over and become the mm. opposite of what they were. And you've gone so far down yeah, the liberation route and it's flipped indeed. over and become very rigid 1950s gender values. Again, that that's where yeah. feminism has ultimately led, which is it's incredible. It's, it's and I, I'm <laughs> firmly convinced that that accounts for a large portion of this um, phenomenon. Yeah. Reading the likes of Abigail Schreier's work and then looking at her critics and going back and yeah. forth with that, it seems like she's overwhelmingly right and a very nice compassionate person in the way she's uh, dealing with this that this is uh what's the word a social contagion that's gone around and yes. redefining certain yeah. values that, that seems to be overwhelmingly the case if you extract that out you do seem to be left with a small number of people who right from the get-go identify strongly with the opposite gender from being three years old and express this kind of horror at being in a body and in a body that's going to go into puberty and and the wrong way and one one thought experiment i i put to you that i i thought of for that is like if i was in one of those 1980s films where people wake up and swapped in a body of someone else yeah right which we all enjoyed and a very good kind of you know for learning about the other side of life yeah. ideas yeah. but if i suddenly woke up tomorrow in the body of a woman i think i might carry on insisting that i am a man at least for some Indeed. time or very much struggle with that so i wanted to put that to you recognizing that the one answer to that can be well that it's impossible because so much of you is wrapped up in in the body that you wouldn't be you anymore it would be like going through this teleporter on star trek and it's just a copy of you that arises so but yeah. i mean what do you think of that really as a, as a thought experiment if you, if you were well, in a female body <laughs> <laughs> i'm going can i just park that one for just a second because i'm yeah. going to come back to the dualism and i'm going to talk about monism and the problems it has and explain mm -hmm. and say why i think both sets of views have problems it's not like one side is so clearly and obviously correct that it's unproblematic but anyway to come back to your point um the problem with all of that is that it, it's it's clear enough that some proportion of young people have what's known as gender dysphoria okay you can talk about it. it used to be called gender identity disorder and so on and so forth and there are those who now claim that it isn't a psychological problem at all right but something to be validated and recognized and then encouraged and all of the rest but i would come back to the point that you made earlier which about dyslexia and body image disorder and i would say that if you put all of these things together they all involve a tension between what your psychology and your body all right and there's there are only two ways to sort this out one is you adapt your psychology to your somatic reality in other words you make your what the way you think about yourself if you like conform to the way your body is this would be the case that this is what you would do with dyslexia for example that's what you would do with body image disorder you would conform your psychology to the body you could also of course go in the other direction you could conform your body to your way of thinking and nobody does this with dyslexia nobody thinks this is in any way appropriate in dyslexia or with body image disorder. now the same thing applies to gender dysphoria you can solve your problem as it were assuming it's soluble by reconciling your psychology the way you think of yourself the way you feel with your somatic reality 
or you can modify your somatic, somatic reality to conform to the way you think about it. But curiously, and it seems to me, for no good reason, we now say that in this case, getting somebody to psychologically adapt themselves to their somatic reality is conversion therapy and it's terrible and should be banned. Okay, We don't do that with dyslexia. Okay, Whereas getting somebody's body to conform to their feelings by hormonal treatment and by surgery is fine. And I would go, well, that if that isn't conversion therapy, I don't know what is. And an even more form of dramatic conversion therapy. And by the way, one that if you certainly if you go if you go to surgery is not reversible and probably not reversible, even when it comes to sex change hormones either. It has lasting effects on the body. If you change your mind later on and remember, the majority of boys change their mind automatically, you know, without any urging or without any treatment and a smaller but still significant majority of girls do so. They will, if they go through any of these procedures, they will not be in a position to go back to the where they were and start all over again. They will have probably damaged themselves and uh, affected their body and their ability, for example, in the case of women to bear children and so on and so on and so forth. That's that one. Can I can I come back yeah. to the stuff on the metaphysical? Because here's the thing. Okay, so there so are Joe, two... can I just interject one comment oh, yes. on that, and then because then we'll round up on, yeah. on metaphysical yeah. and the consequences. Yeah, just on that, I asked a psychotherapist friend of mine about this whole thing, and yes. she was commenting how strange it is that in any other area, the role of the psychotherapist is to affirm and challenge. So to affirm how the person is feeling, and to it's fine that you feel that, and then challenge. They put it for all of these different ways of looking at it. Uh, except transgender, where then you yes. only affirm, and it's a disaster not to affirm. Right. And yeah. it only occurred to me later, and I, I just messaged her and said, well, wouldn't that be the same as homosexuality then? Because I, I would imagine that if somebody came to you and uh, as, a, as a therapist and said, well, actually, I, I feel like I'm gay, but my family really are opposed to that, you wouldn't challenge them around that. That wouldn't be the thinking now for probably decades. And and she said, yes, that's right. So transgender has gone into the, char into the category of being uh, an immutable characteristic. Yes not a dysphoria and that that's, that's right. how it's seen and why it's that, that really yeah that lit it up for me you know they, i mean indeed and indeed it's unchallengeable and uh, you're regarded as some kind of bigot if you if you suggest that the appropriate thing is to obviously be sympathetic and understanding of somebody who's genuinely dysphoric because that's a problem whatever way you think about it right it's a problem for them right but it's one thing to accept that somebody has a problem it's another thing to accept their own description and understanding of how that is to be understood okay um and that's that's where it goes too far anyway let's come back to the thing about if you like yeah, the fundamental uh, philosophical psychology so earlier we were talking about dualism and so dualism in a sense allows certain things to become unproblematic so if the real you is not your body, then there is nothing in principle to prevent it being associated with another body. So, for example, reincarnation becomes a possibility. I'm not saying it's actual. I'm saying it's a possibility because you're not the body. And if this body disappears or whatever goes away and some and you're attached to another body, then it's the it's the same you. Okay? The body doesn't actually characterize what you are. But there's a problem with that, which is that your sex is 
given to you sorry let me start again whatever it is that is the real you in dualism is by definition not body is that mm. we're on the yeah. same page right it's not a body right and therefore it cannot have somatic characteristics intrinsically mm. it doesn't have a body okay and sex is a somatic characteristic so whatever it is that you are really one thing that you're not is either male or female you can't be either okay it's not possible yeah. okay yeah. Uh, it's so it's like in in the western tradition um in angelology the angels are conceived of as pure spirits but the angels are neither male nor female and they're not deficient in that regard it's just that sexuality and sex is not a characteristic that can attach to a pure spirit it just and so on all right so there there's your problem another problem is and i sometimes make a joke about this in the following way which is what's a nice soul like you doing with a body like this okay there's so it's a generic problem with dualism if the real you is the self or soul or atman you have to tell a story about how it gets to be associated with this kind of low life body now there are stories okay and generally the the, the sort of the more the, the sort of generic approach here is to say that something happened at some stage you started life as this kind of pure spirit and something went wrong somewhere along the line and as a kind of a punishment or whatever it might be you get stuck with this body and then there are ways recommended by which you can dissociate from it uh temporarily or move up the scale or whatever it might be and eventually you can leave it behind completely okay that's thing. now i should say by the way that many practicing Christians, and I'm going to come to this point in a sec, actually have a kind of dualistic view. And some of the language in use tends to support that, especially talk about the soul. They talk about my soul going to heaven and that sort of thing. And you know, they, they suggest that what I really am. And in fact, in some cases, I've seen it. Uh, it's become more obvious recently. Um, I, was in a, I was in a graveyard recently, and there was a, a, a gravestone which had been put up obviously to a child that died either in childbirth or very young and it said born an angel now i'm not going to write in anybody's parade <laughs> i'm not going to get a chisel and chisel that off <laughs> okay uh, i understand what the parents of that child are feeling and, and so on i sympathize but the point is the child wasn't born an angel children aren't angels human beings alive or dead are not and cannot be angels right and so let me now come to a kind of monistic position or at least a kind of uh, limited dualism in a way that because we've been talking about what's sometimes called extreme dualism um christianity in its because of its beginnings tended to flirt with uh, platonic philosophy in its early days and there's you know that you could be forgiven for thinking that they bought into its philosophical anthropology but the standard view in kind of orthodox christianity is that the human being is one thing you are one being you can have two dimensions if you like you can have if you like a soul dimension and a body dimension but neither of these is a substance in its own right Okay. In other words, what makes you to be you 
is not some kind of mixture of two different kinds of things that are sort of put together, but they come together to form one being. Now, so that that then takes that makes you then to be um, intrinsically embodied, and that fits in with some sort of larger views because. Uh, it would then explain when God creates the heavens and the earth and creates the ranks of the angels, their pure spirits and so on. And then eventually he comes to human beings who are, in a sense, part spiritual, if you like, because of their souls, which allows them to do certain things that, say, the souls of animals don't do. But we are not accidentally incorporated. In other words, God hasn't put us in a body as a kind of a punishment. Right. And the story, I mean, the beginning, you know, Genesis, whatever you think about it, and however metaphorical it might be in many ways, nonetheless, it created human beings from the dust of the earth. We are intrinsically embodied. To exist as a human being is to exist in a body. Interesting, we can talk later, if you like, if we have time, about transhumanism, which raises certain questions which are similar to this, but in another technological mode. But anyway, that being so, uh, that will get us over the hump of if you like, preventing it from being the case that somebody who is clearly a man and who says he's a woman is in fact a woman because the somatic thing here is what determines your identity. All right, fine. The problem, however, is <laughs> that in, in standard, in Orthodox Christianity, uh, what you say every Sunday at Mass is not, I believe, in the immortality of the soul, but I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, remember, you see, to be you is to be essentially embodied. So if you die at time t, and you're not resurrected until time t plus 27, whatever that might be, fill an ending over your life, as long as there's a gap, what happens to you in between? You haven't got a body. Your body is in the ground or in the crematorium. And in fact, <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, one of the greatest theologians of all time, says in his commentary on Corinthians, anima mea non est ego. My soul is not me. Now, this is not some kind of wild-eyed, bug-eyed Franciscan or Jesuit or something going crazy. This is somebody whose orthodoxy is impeccable. And so he believes that the human soul can subsist apart from the body, but in doing so, you don't subsist because you're not your soul. You're not your, you are not you unless your soul and your body are, as it were, reunited. So this raises all sorts of fascinating and problematic questions. And particularly, for example, um, for Catholics like myself, because we have in, in our religious cult, for example, we have a whole thing about the saints and the saints are human beings who have died. Right. And we believe that they can be addressed. Okay. But you don't address somebody who doesn't exist. <laughs> doesn't make any sense, not unless you're psychic, okay? not unless you've got psychological problems. So in some sense, a, the kind of orthodox Catholic view has to accommodate the idea that somehow after and immediately after death, the, the person that you were continues to exist in some sense. Okay. Um, metaphysically, we accept that the soul, the human soul can exist apart from the body, though its purpose is to inform the body. But it is problematic, and I have not yet seen a completely satisfactory account. You can always, of course, wave a magic wand and say, well, God does something, right? 
it's like well yeah that's the classic yeah. <laughs> uh you know deus ex machina okay you can so on but i would rather not be forced to kind of pull that rabbit out of the hat unless i had to so you can begin to see how whether you whether you're a, a an ontological dualist and you think in soul and body are two different kinds of things which are contingently attached or whether you're a moderate dualist like say aristotle where you think that soul and body are two principles which coexist as parts of one being okay either way you end up with problems there is no it seems to me completely unproblematic way of dealing with these issues sorry about that long disquisition no no that's very good and i might just like to benchmark that and maybe we could talk about that in the future pick on that very metaphysical point in the future if you'd be willing to because i, I, I just gather my own thoughts on it um mm. so if we can benchmark that and maybe come back to the transgender because if i go any further down that is going to be yes. you know uh, um so let's look at the, the the implications okay because you said you wouldn't call someone um male who is female female is male now i think until recently i hadn't really thought about this too much and to the extent i had i thought it could potentially well on on the one hand we generally go for life trying to be polite okay and accommodating to other people's Yes, works or, or whatever yeah. and to the extent i thought it could be bad i thought well you know certainly if someone was a young person i might have moral qualms about calling them the opposite gender to i sorry i actually not to obey with the language of gender and sex but calling them the opposite of what they are because if they come back to me in 10 years time post off mm -hmm. talking about how it ruined their lives and all these people encouraged them in that it seems like just the height of immorality to encourage people in delusions that can have drastic consequences and that's what i could be doing yes. and anyone who doesn't take that seriously is just being completely immoral to my well, yeah. to my mind they just are they're just being I agree. completely reckless and immoral with yeah. um, other people's lives and, and often sort of vulnerable children's lives what i hadn't really considered is because i might have said okay well look adults maybe a different category okay maybe um if they've been consistently doing this for a long time they've made their choice and who am i to question that so i wouldn't have necessarily seen a problem of calling like he, she, and she, he. And um, I was probably introduced as a young age of the character of Haley Cropper on Coronation Street, and he came on the screens in, in the 90s. I don't know if you're blessed of Coronation Street in, in Ireland, but no, there was, there was, more there was a man who transitioned to a woman, and it was just that this character was played by a All female right. actor, from the actress from the start. So, um, but, but it was just accepted that Haley was a woman, and of course, That's interesting. the actress was playing a woman, uh, was, was, the character was played by a woman, so you looked like a woman, and, and away we went. And um, so I didn't really see the problem with it. But then it's only really to think about it recently that okay, they just seemed to me, I, I would like to be able to say, okay, we can do, we can accommodate politeness and that doesn't have downstream consequences, which are absolutely unavoidable. But so I, I, I think I sent you the video, didn't I, for, for hmm, a man who had a surgical operation and in his mind, in her mind, in his mind has become a woman. Um, and sued a train company for um discrimination because he she was called sir okay mm -hmm. and in the interview the interview is very understanding and i thought well hang on what, what's the implication of this like when if we engage in something that maybe isn't true for politeness do we say okay the jig's up before they step into the toilets or the communal changing area 
And if you can be fined money for doing that, well, you're not very likely to, are you? So um, what this means is there is, seems to be an inevitable link between losing this or, or being accommodated in that way and the erosion of female-only spaces and male-only spaces. I'll just, I'll just pick one gender and say female rather than saying female and male. Yes. Way through, but, yeah, you know, just female-only spaces, okay? <laughs> and, and that seems to be unavoidable. So on the one hand, I would like to be a, a nice, compassionate person to people who... Uh, suffer from day one in life from feeling in the wrong body but on on the other hand i, I can't see how it works and maybe it would work if it was just a minority of people. maybe there'd be some accommodation but we have to acknowledge there are a certain percentage of particularly men who are utterly predatory just utterly predatory and will do things like get reassigned to a female prison mm. uh, just to be in a space with vulnerable women and would, would have no shame at all about walking into a female changing room and getting naked without any sort mm. of surgical operation or anything happened. and that mm. becomes completely unavoidable as soon as we engage in that first act of politeness and calling yeah. he she that and i don't want that to be the conclusion gerald i want to think we can live in a world where we can balance these things pessimistically i don't think we can not easily That's well okay so i mind again i think you raise a valid concerns so, so let's take a sort of, uh, let's see if we can take a real life example. So I've already conceded, for example, that if somebody changes name, I'm happy to use their name. If it's, stere it's a stereotype, if the person is male and has, is using a stereotypical female name, I don't care. Names are names. You call yourself anything. Call yourself Hiawatha, Twinkle Toes, right? I will use the name. When it comes to pronouns, in English at least, situation is different in French and German. But in English, we don't address people in the third person. We address people in the second person. We say, how are you? Hmm. Would you like something to eat? <laughs> okay. Right? We don't say, how is she? Or how is he? Not to you directly, right? Hmm. We only use third person pronouns when we are referring to somebody. Okay. And Therefore, so let's take an example. Suppose I'm a teacher. And let's suppose that someone in my class who is a boy now claims to be a girl and his name is Evangeline. I will call that boy Evangeline. And if Evangeline drops a pencil, I will say to Michael in the next thing, Michael, would you pick up the pencil and give it to Evangeline? I don't have to use pronouns. I can simply use the name. Pronouns exist simply to replace names. And I can replace, I can use the name. So there's no reason at all why people in those circumstances, knowing things, by the way, because inadvertently, I mean, as I suppose, I presume something like that is what happened on the train, that the person looked like a man, okay, when was addressed. I, I, I can't imagine that the that the conductor, whoever it was, addressed the person deliberately in that way. Okay, but maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but who knows? Um, oh. So, so we can accommodate we can accommodate those social niceties fairly unproblematically. It's a little bit more difficult in French and German because there are there are third person ways of addressing somebody. In Italian, for example, it's the polite, it's the ultra polite way to address somebody is in the third person. So you would have different problems. But I'm I'm concerned only with people who are English speakers. Mm. Italian and French and German can yeah, sort it out sort for themselves. themselves yeah. <laughs> they can sort it out for themselves, right? But the more serious problem you raise, and we have now seen it, is that, so let's take the example of women's sports. 
Now, women's sports exist for the sake of women. They don't exist for the sake of men. In fact, in many sports, what they talk of as the men's team is in fact an open team. There's nothing in principle, probably in the rules of the game, to stop a woman being on that team. There's every reason not to put a woman on the team, especially if it's rugby or something, yeah. but it turns out. So that's true, for example, in Frisbee. Frisbee has an open section, which is almost invariably men, and then they have a mixed section, which is composed of a certain number of men and a certain number of women. So I, in my book, I go through the th thing on sports and I show that consistently in every sport that requires, with, with one bizarre exception, endurance, speed, strength, uh, and all of the rest, men outperform women consistently. Now, before, I, before somebody starts contradicting me, let me make the point that it, you have to look at it like this. So that means that, the, the, that at the top end of the range, for example, in all of these things, men will outperform any woman. When you move down, of course, you will always be able to find a woman who is better than some particular man, yeah. right? But the, and, but the point is, in sports, generally speaking, and, and especially in professional or elite sports, you're always talking about the top, okay? So when it comes to swimming or it comes to running or jumping or, or, or rugby or football, um, then if a man claims to be a woman, and can participate in the sports, then they will have other things being equal, because obviously you could have a very weedy seven stone <laughs> competing with 10 stone girls and wouldn't, but, 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 but across the board, okay, the, the man would have an advantage. And that advantage, by the way, doesn't disappear if you're on hormones and so on, because the skeletal advantages and the muscular advantages yeah. remain, um, uh, the chest size, the lung capacity, your ability to breathe, your your over your upper body strength, all those characteristics remain. So, as I said, the reason women's sports exist is for the sake of women, and therefore, if men can claim men claiming to be women can participate in those sports, then they seriously disadvantage, not in every case, but in most cases, especially when it counts, the women who are competing in those sports. I mean, not only not only by winning those sports. For example, if there was a, a swimmer in the uh, college swimmer in the United States recently has been doing this. Okay, uh, you know, beating, for example, the leading female competitor by like five seconds or some ridiculous thing in in swimming. Um, and also, if you're talking about selection for teams, then some woman will lose a place that should be theirs. Okay, and then there's issue of privacy. So if I'm a woman and I want to go into a, into a woman's toilet, I expect I don't expect men to be there. Okay, I expect other women to be there. And uh, if, I know, for example, that it happened to me once the other way around in in the men's toilet. The cleaning woman came in while 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 I was there using a urinal and and didn't seem to be bothered by it, but I was bothered by it. Mm. Right, it made me extremely uncomfortable. Okay, so I imagine the situation is 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 the same. In fact, indeed, magnified if it's the other way around. So there are practical issues as well. So the politeness issue is not a problem. That can be addressed, right, fairly easily, certainly in English speakers. But the other problem, which which my my trans exclusionary radical friends and I have now actually come to know quite a few of these, and I in fact went to a meeting in Dublin organised by them uh, earlier. Sorry, at the end of last year. And there were about 180 
very angry and agitated women there. And I could understand why. I was invited and I felt honored to be invited to come come along because of what I've been doing in terms of my book and in terms of my tweets. But uh, I didn't speak and so on. It was their issue. And they were raising all of these things. And it's perfectly genuine. These are not these are not women having some kind of hissy fit about nothing. This this is actually a practically important and significant development that uh, affects any woman potentially and for what it's what i've heard the way people talk mm -hmm. about it is all of a sudden particularly women because it i mean i understand the cleaning lady came in to the toilet but it is qualitatively different i think um so it's more women that are forming trans exclusionary groups indeed yeah so mm -hmm. but there's now a requirement to give a justification for why you would want a gender exclusive space and things would be said like um, well what danger do they pose but i'm not sure it was always about or just about danger right and it's probably quite no. probably quite difficult for even you to say well what was it about the cleaning lady coming in that was uncomfortable right and but even the idea that you should be required to put that into words and to justify why you have a right to a gender exclusive space that's that's quite incredible uh, and I hear it is radio companies bullying people on the line to to well, what, what I do know. you mean that? What, what do you say? And I go, well, it's not. Yeah. It's a question <laughs> of privacy. It's a question of privacy. It, 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 the most inoffensive transgender person can wander into your private space, uh, posing no physical threat to you. Fine, but the point is, the mere fact that they are there is an invasion of your privacy, and that's problematic. Do you and suspect, it should be problematic. Do you suspect, so that just maybe finish off on this point of the, the transgender, that your book is called Hidden Agenda, so implying there is an agenda. And I've been part of the reason I never paid much attention to this whole thing is because I thought it was going to blow over because it's too, it's too out of touch with people's morals and attitudes, okay, to, to really fly. And the idea of men going into communal women's cha um, changing spaces is never going to take off. Um, I, and then I thought to myself, well, you would need some kind of cultural revolution, right, for that to happen. Like, it is the case, like, when I've been to the Netherlands, say, they're more comfortable with nudity there. So it is the case that I've been in the toilets at the airport and the female cleaner will just walk in. And that you've got to accept that because it's the Netherlands. And if you're in an Aboriginal society, maybe people don't sexualize nudity in the same way. I and mean, they don't have the yeah. same yeah. Yeah. quote. Yeah. So there is a cultural aspect. Understood. And then I do just wonder then with this um, push for things like Drag Queen Story Hour and the pushing of a very... Uh, transgender agenda thing onto children well but that's what it would take if you're going to bring in a new society maybe i'm being too conspiratorial here but if you were going to bring in a new society you won't do it by getting old people to change their mind you have to have the old people die off and the young people growing up believing something different you have to have the young people growing up believing that sex is this immutable or oh i'm getting confused myself now but the inner sense of self is the immutable the body is changeable you know um, yeah, and th yeah. that and and it's fine to be it's quite it's quite extraordinary you know, isn't it that you know women can have penises that kind of you, you it's, have it's to quite extraordinary that some it's quite extraordinary that some character some psychological characteristic is now taken to be an immutable mm. fact about you which cannot be changed but your body which is like manifestly there in front of you is is somehow problematic and needs to be adjusted. Uh, no, uh, no, the points you raised are very valid and we are actually seeing a revolution. So what we've actually witnessed is, and this brings us back to where we started, I suppose, uh, is we have seen the major institution in society captured by 
uh, the transgender ideology, by which I mean politicians by and large, so that the Labour Party in the UK, for example, can't even bring themselves to say what a woman is. Mm. Okay, and I came I came across a tweet the other day which said uh, somebody was talking about uh, objecting to a crossword puzzle in Australia, which had given adult humane female as a clue uh, for a word with five letters. And they said that this was this was inciting violence. And I'm going, what? Okay, so it's to say adult human being is now like wildly controversial. What is a woman? So that the leader of the, you know, the leader of, of the British Labour Party can't bring himself mm. to say that a woman is an adult human female. And I'm thinking, what's happened here? So it's captured the, the large sections of the politics. It's captured the law in the Gender Recognition Act. It's captured the media we're fully on board with this. It's captured the educational establishment who are pushing this like crazy. It's captured the universities. It's quite stunning. I mean, you know, those are five major institutions, okay? Uh, all pushing, all accepting this, all pushing it like crazy. And on the other side, you have unfortunate parents who are going, what in the name of goodness is going on here? Or indeed, the mass of people who are completely unaware that all of this is happening around them. And in the meantime, the children, especially in the schools, now being indoctrinated into this thing that sex and that gender is more important than sex and that gender is a psychological characteristic and that you, all of these things and God only knows. I mean, I've, I've seen some of the stuff that's in the uh, curricula. It's a shocking stuff. And it is a revolution, and it is an attempt to replace one way of thinking with another way of thinking. And I have to tell you, as of now, it's succeeding. It's not going away. I thought that this was so crazy that it simply couldn't be sustainable. In other words, I have argued that Section 18, Paragraph 1 of the Irish Gender Recognition Act goes through all the stuff, blah, 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 blah. And it says eventually that a man with male gender will now be of the male sex. Sorry, a woman with the male gender will be a male sex and a male with the female gender will be uh, of the female sex, sex, not mm. gender. And I thought, well, if the law can do this, there is, there is a cancer right at the heart of the law. In fact, I mentioned at the start of my book, uh, an, uh, an English nobleman of the 17th century remarked, my father told me, he said, that the English parliament could do anything except make a man a woman or a woman a man. And he meant that to demonstrate that, you know, parliamentary supremacy. Yeah. But even say, like he was pointing out that there are limits. And I, I thought, well, you should be living now. Yeah. Because that's just what they've done. It's um, just one comment and then I've got a question. It's a real gift of the, the political right because back 20 years ago, they were left having to justify the Iraq war, which got to be a harder and harder sell every year it went by. But now <laughs> yeah. all they've got to do is say, what is a woman? And they just win every time. It's really like <laughs> their lives have been made very, very easy by this. But, um, one oh, except, theme... except that, Richard, there are those on the, on, in the, say, in the Conservative Party who are on board with this. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not just a party issue. I mean, it seems to have captured the Labour Party completely. Well, it's come about. And what's left of the Liberals. Yeah. But, but the Conservatives, of course, I mean, are not, as we know, they're not really Conservative anyway, but, but yeah. many of them are on board with this. I, I, either, either gung-ho, probably a small number, and the majority will need to go along and not, or not rock the boat. So and this might be a, a hard question, but 
I hear, and I don't know if this is true, but I hear that there's reason to believe people have become more internally focused over the decades and centuries. So apparently, if you read diaries from the 18th and 19th century, they're very literal and they're very about what I did today and what I'm doing. I milk the cows and tomorrow I'm going to church. And as the decades have gone by, our writing has become more and more inwardly focused. And I, I write my diary and I discuss my romances or I discuss my inner feelings or who I really want to be mm. and, and all this kind of thing. So there's a trend from the material to the psychic, to the psychic. I don't mean to, like just the to, from matter to mind, if you like. And I wonder then, because you're seeing this quantum leap, maybe it's been brought on by pushing an ideology. Maybe it's been brought on by technology that we can all be avatars now and kind of exist in imaginary yeah. technological worlds. And maybe that brings in the transgender aspect. But uh, do you have any opinion on that? Of this, re this represents a kind of shift in the focus of human awareness to a more inner state of being as being the real world and the world out, out here, the material world we still battle against as being more of an illusion. No, I think you I think you have a point, but I, I wouldn't make too much of it. For example, if you read the letters, for example, of Cicero, Cicero wrote every day to his friend Atticus, and he discusses obviously what's going on in Rome and who's doing what to whom, but he also discusses his inner feelings. So mm. so that's it's so you have to in other words, your average diary is got up, had my breakfast, went to school. Okay. I mean, not every diarist is a Samuel Pepys. <laughs> okay. So most diaries are not like that. It's certainly true in literature, right, that there's been a shift, as it were, from the exterior to the interior. And that's true to some extent in the visual arts as well. Okay, until you get to the absurdity of conceptual art and all of the rest. Nowadays, by the way, I mean, interesting. Here's an interesting exercise. When you go, stand, go into a, a gallery where the modern paintings are, and just stand there and watch somebody come up to a painting that is non-representational. And they will look at it very briefly, and then they will spend a minute and a half reading the description on the side. Hmm. <laughs> you have to be told what it is that you're yeah. seeing. It's interesting. So, yeah, there certainly has been a tendency in that way, both, as I said, in literature and art. But I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on that. Okay. I think that's just a particular historical feature yeah are there any comments you made if you mentioned uh transhumanism before yes. I, I don't i don't well i know what it is but i think i know what it is i don't know if i know what it is but can, maybe you want to finish up some comments on on that well it's probably it's too big a, it's too big a okay. topic really to open up now but I, I just sort of give a brief indication uh the transhumanists um they obviously vary among themselves but by and large they they are people who are as we were looking at the human condition and the fact that we are afflicted with what the Book of Common Prayer calls these vile bodies, okay? bodies susceptible to destruction and death and damage and proper improper functioning. I mean, you know, you can be the most brilliant person in the world and you get a heavy cold and you, you can't think straight. You can't like tie your shoelaces, right? And, and therefore, they envisage a future in which human beings will make use of technology in various ways, uh, both either to enhance their, their current somatic conditions or more radically by, as it were, uploading their minds into the appropriate container, as it were, for the moment, and then downloading it into a more durable substrate than the organic body we currently have. It would be some kind of a skeleton, some, some kind of mechanical device, which uh, can then be replaced. In other words, like if your arm, if the mechanical arm falls off, you just get a new one. 
right? Whereas if you lose your biological arm, it's more problematic. That's a very simplistic account, um, but it's it's very, it's a big thing at the moment and it's very popular, especially among the kind of geeky people and among the people who are big into computer and artificial intelligence and so on. But there is a growing literature in it. And there are actually aspects of it which mirror the kinds of concerns that religious people have. Some people see transhumanism as a kind of a religion for the 21st century uh, and so on. And I'm finding it fascinating and I'm thinking of, of beginning to write in this area, but I'm only starting to kind of read and it's, I've got a lot of work to do and I may not bring that uh, project to fruition. But it does raise the kind of issues we addressed on on dualism and monism and so on, mind and body and what it is that you really are. All those questions come up again, this time in a kind of interestingly new technological uh, dimension, which would not have been there as it were for standard philosophy. Okay, thank you very much, Gerard. Maybe just mention where people can get the book name of the book oh uh well the book is hidden hidden agenda but a-g-e-n-d-e-r okay there's a pun <laughs> okay uh, uh in it and you can get that book along with my other books uh on amazon or on book depository if you just go in there and put in my name uh jared casey and hidden agenda it'll pop up okay and, and i shall link to them in the the info box yeah but buy several copies for your friends if, if only to annoy them <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome, Richard. Good to talk to you.